0: Summit family, the last two weekends have been amazing. We have seen person after person come forward to profess their faith in Christ through baptism. These are people who have publicly declared Jesus Christ as their Lord and savior while committing to go wherever he sends them to go and, and to do whatever he asked them to do. Their yes is on the table, so to speak, and they're, they're asking God to put it on the map. Now, as you walked into service today, you might've noticed that it's a little bit calmer than usual around here. Well, that's because right now there are about 250 high school students, including my and uh, leaders on our annual high school fall retreat. Uh, we are a church that that passionately cares about high school students trusting Christ. We know that this is the front lines of ministry and we want to see them live out gospel saturated lives before they graduate from high school. So this weekend our, our student ministry is with them on a retreat addressing some, some really weighty topics that our society throws their way and they are learning how to, to know and follow Christ better in these. So would you at some point today would you stop and ask God to move in the hearts of our students to to draw them to himself and to use them to see a movement of the gospel happening in local high school campuses all over our city. So finally this weekend, we have the, the the privilege of hearing from Pastor Ryan Kwan. He is here with us. Pastor Ryan is originally from Los Angeles. He moved to the Bay Area with a vision to, to plant a, a gospel-focused church that was committed to blessing the city, not just spiritually, but also socially and physically. And so um, the church that he pastors now is just uh, in very in many ways, it's very similar to um, us. Is the Summit Church, and so um, he and I have gotten to know each other at some places we've been that we we spoke together at, and, and God just really knit our hearts together, and so he's become a, a very fast friend. Uh, one other thing I found out that Pastor Ryan and I have in common is that Ryan loves food so much that at one point he was a competitive eater. Um, he was in a steak eating contest and was practicing for it. He said the reason that he lost, he said, my stomach was in shape, but I hadn't got my jaw in shape where I could I could chew fast enough. I cannot I can't make even make that stuff up, um, but. But anyway, if I weren't a a pastor, I I could think of probably no other area I could really be a professional in, but I think I could have been a professional eater. Um, This guy, Pastor Ryan, he loves Jesus. He loves the local church. He loves preaching the word of God. He loves steak. If you throw in some Nicolas Cage movies into that mix, I would swear we would be soulmates. Uh, The biggest takeaway in this part, we are in good hands this weekend, Summit Church. So I want you right now at all of our campuses to put your hands together and join me in welcoming Pastor Ryan Kwan.
1: Hey, what's up, Summit Church? I am blessed to be here. And I realize that I am standing on sacred ground. There's some robust preachers that have been on the stage preaching the word of God. Some white folks, black folks, brown folks, even some red folks, right? One of my best friends, Joby Martin, was here a couple months ago. Some of my best friends. He's the biggest redneck I know. And I realize, though, that you've never had a yellow. All right? So a few months back, Pastor JD and I were speaking at a Gospel Coalition event, Suffering for Jesus in Hawaii. And he leans over to me in the front row, and he says, Hey, bro, man, I realize that we haven't had an Asian brother preach at our church. So I was wondering, do you happen to have Francis Chan's number? <laughs> I guess he couldn't come, so here I am. Next best thing. No, it went something like that. Listen, truth be told, this is the top five church that I would want to visit, let alone preach, and I'm honored to be here. So thank you so much for having me. If you have the Bible with you, I hope you do, would you turn to Isaiah chapter 55 for today's word? Isaiah chapter, chapter 55, and we will be looking at the first seven verses of this beautiful, beautiful book. And I've been enjoying your sermon series on Galatians. It's been powerful. It's been liberating. It is so gospel-centered. And the Summit Church is a gospel-centered church. And what that means to me is that if the Summit Church was a town, the main road that goes directly in the middle of town would be the gospel. And because of that, there are a lot of access roads that is adjacent to the main road of the gospel, and the very first and the most important one, in my opinion, according to the Bible also, would be mission. That the gospel propels us to mission. That's exactly what we're talking about today. Isaiah 55 is addressing mission. It's one of the most beautiful, profound verses on the mission of God, and what I want to do with the remainder of our time together is to show, uh, uh, just draw out three things about mission. And here's the first one. If you're taking notes like all good saints do, all right, here's the first point. God, who brought you in, now sends you out. And we see this in verse 3. God says, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. Behold, now... You shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And in short, what God is saying is that I am going to give you a brand new covenant, the same covenant that I gave to David. That covenant made him a witness of me, and now I'm going to send you out just like I sent him out on mission as my witness. Now the word witness here in the English and in the Hebrew is really the same word. It has two ideas. One, it has the idea of witnessing in court, testifying in court. Secondly, it's the idea that you might be a notary, that you experience something, you're on site for something, you see a vow or a signature being signed, and you validate for it. And know this, that every witness under the idea of witness, it always assumes, first, that you've experienced something firsthand. You've experienced something. And that is the biblical idea of a witness. I've experienced something. and Now I have something to tell about it. And that is what God is saying here. God is saying to his people, I want you to become a witness of the life-changing relationship that you have experienced in me. So now go tell others. By the way, this is not just found in the book of Isaiah. We know that it's been found in Genesis. It starts all the way from there when Abraham was drawn to the encounter with God under the stars. God says, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. And upon that encounter, immediately, what does God say? Now go get out, right? Same thing with Moses. He encounters God through a burning bush. Amazing encounter immediately. See, go to Pharaoh. Isaiah chapter six, the same thing. He encounters God in the most amazing way. God sitting on the throne in his temple and the angel of the Lord comes, brings a coal, and touches his lips, immediately healing him from his sins and transgressions, and he says, go therefore. What we see consistently throughout the Bible is that God never calls you radically in without calling you radically out. That is the principle, and yet, Jesus does the same thing in the New Testament. Jesus talks to his disciples and says, As the Father has sent me, now I send you. Yet yeah, God made me a man on mission, therefore now I'm sending you to become men and women on mission. Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 gives a glorious treatise of the gospel talking about this amazing, beautiful doctrine of justification. You are encountered by this, and yet immediately, he asks one of the best questions in the entire Bible. He says, how can they hear if they've never, ever, ever heard? And how could they hear if, if you are not being sent? You see, the answer is they cannot hear. And the assumption here is that a witness is every single person who's truly encountered the gospel. And if you have encountered the gospel, you cannot unsee what you have already seen. It's impossible. So if you're here today, and if you could testify that you've had a real encounter with God, you could say, you know, I really have a true relationship with God himself, then that also means he's sending you so that others may believe. Now, you realize this happens naturally in our lives, right? Whatever we experience, we can't help not to share, I mean, we share all the time, especially in this culture with the social media platforms that we have, we share everything. I mean, last week, I was speaking at a conference and I was dog tired, I just wanted to be home. I landed in my airport and I just called the Uber and it was 12 minutes away, I'm like, 12 minutes too long. And 12 minutes passed, it says a white Honda Accord that is brand new is gonna roll up and pick me up like a chariot. I was waiting, waited 12 minutes, turned to 20, 20 turned to 30, 30 turned to 40, and I was getting angry because all the other people that were waiting were gone. And here I was standing by myself. Finally, after 45 minutes, not a Honda Accord rolls up, but it looked like a chicken coop on wheels rolls up, right? And I'm like, I'm not getting into that thing. I am not, except I want to go home, embrace my wife, embrace my kids, and eat some more in chicken. That's all I want to do. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to hold my breath and go in. So courageously, I went in, I sat in the back seat, and before we could even leave the airport, he turns around and quote, tells me this, ready? He says, sir, do you mind if I take a time out to drop a deuce? <laughs> All right, maybe that's a California term. All right, he had to go potty. <laughs> no. Is that a rhetorical question? I mean, could you actually refuse and say, no, I, I, you cannot? <laughs> I mean, is that even an option, right? I, and I don't think so. So I'm like, uh, 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 I, this is so weird. I guess so, right? And he goes NASCAR on me, starts peeling out, finds the nearest hotel and stops in the middle of the turnabout. Middle, not on the curve. And he bolts, leaving the car running, leaving me in the backseat. People honking, trying to get around me, and I'm like, So embarrassing. The first thing I do is I get out my phone and I text my wife, babe, my Uber driver is dropping a deuce. (laughs) Then the next thing is I open up my Facebook app and say, my Uber driver is dropping a deuce. Right? Listen, whatever we experience, we can't help but share, right? I mean, that's what the premise of Yelp is, right? When Yelp was created, Nobody said, ah, oh, they're not going to share their opinion. No way. But you know what? The scientists of Yelp knew something that we didn't. Yeah, we love sharing anything that is compelling to us. This is what our Facebook is, Instagram. If I were to go on your Instagram, I know exactly what you're endorsing. If you come to my Facebook, you would exactly know that I endorse three things, Jesus, family, and food. Those are the only three, three things that you'll see. And that is the reality, You see, you might endorse UNC or Duke or family vacations, but whatever it is, you are a witness to all things that are good and compelling in your life. So here's a thought, that if you're finding yourself so compelled that you are propelled to share the word of God, to share the gospel, then that means you're really compelled. And yet, if you're not propelled for the gospel, then perhaps, and maybe, You've never been compelled by God. Maybe you've never been compelled by the gospel. If you've never had the sense that you're being sent out with this inner compulsion to bear the witness of the life-changing relationship with God, perhaps you don't have one yet. And this is what verse 5 assumes. Listen, it says, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. This is mission, right? Because here's the reason why we should go out. Of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel has glorified you. I love that. In the NIV, it translates it as he has endowed you with splendor. not marvelous? He's endowed you with splendor. How beautiful that he has taken you from ashes to beauty, from deadness to life, from depravity to glory, from mourning to dancing. This is what it looks like for you to be endowed with this incredible splendor of the gospel. It's beautiful. If God has brought you in, he has endowed you with splendor. Now he sends you with that splendor to share that splendor with the world. See, all people who have encountered the living God are men and women on mission. Amen? Uh Uh-oh. Amen? Amen. All right. All right. Here's point number two. God sends you out with a message that satisfies. A message that satisfies. Listen to all the imperatives that we see in chapter 55. It says, come. What an invitation. Come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk. Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. If we're not careful, we think we're being invited to dinner or something, right? But this is not an invitation to dinner. This is not just an invitation to be filled. You know what this is an invitation of? It is an invitation to conversion. Conversion. And this is how we know if we read the entire context of all seven verses, we will see God will say things like this. In verse 7, he says, Forsake your way. Okay, that is conversion because the way is your behavior. Then God says, Forsake your thoughts. So that's even further pointing to conversion because he's not saying, Hey, just change your behavior. He's saying, Change your mind and the way you think. Right? He goes on in verse 2 and says, I'm going to give your soul delight and satisfaction. I'm going to give your soul life. What is he talking about? You have to understand that the soul in Hebrew means really the totality of your being. It talk, it's talking about your heart. For example, when the psalmist cries out, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. That's a great illustration and an example of how the psalmist is crying out and saying, not just my soul, but all that is in me is my soul. Worship the Lord. That's what he's saying, right? So the soul in the Old Testament is referring to the totality of your being, your heart. Now, the New Testament equivalent of the soul is your heart. And when we talk about the heart in the New Testament, we often just attribute it to a simple emotion, but it's far deeper than that. The New Testament example and the direction and the definition of a heart is more like your phone when you open up the control panels, right? The control center, okay? That's the heart of your life. Control center of your life is what the heart is really talking about in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 6 is a great example. It says, for where your treasure is, there you'll find your heart also, right? And what that means is simply where you spend your money, you're going to really find your God and what you've been converted to. Because it's the totality of your being. And in your heart, there is something at the core, core nature of your heart of hearts that says, if I have that, I know I'll be happy. If I have that, I know that I'll be satisfied. Every single one of our hearts has made a commitment to something like that. And so when we talk about conversion, according to Isaiah 55, it's not just talking about our behavior, it's not just talking about our thoughts is being converted in the control center of our lives. Therefore, unless our hearts are changed, we can't be converted. That's what it means. And this is why God is using this beautiful metaphor in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. Look at it with me again. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. It says, every heart, God says, is longing for water and bread. But unless it's the water and bread that I give, you're going to starve. That's what he says. Now, you know that there's a New Testament equivalent to this story, right? It's found in John chapter 4 when Jesus encounters a woman at the well. And in verse 13, it says, Jesus says to this woman, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But the water, I mean, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. And the water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. That's what he says to her. So her response is like, really? Sir, then give me this water so that I may never thirst again. How does Jesus respond? Curiously, he says, well, go bring your husband and tell him to come here. She says, I have no husband. She's like, you're darn right you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands and the one that you're living with today is not your husband and you have said that truly. And when we hear that, we say, dang, Jesus, (laughs) you are a cold-blooded man. I mean, why are you going so savage on her, right? I mean, take it easy. All she's wanting is spiritual water that you've actually offered her, and when she says, yeah, give me this water, you're like, let me drag out all your dirty past of your life. I mean, it seems like he's doing that, right? I'm like, why are you so savage on there? Why are you so harsh? And you see, he's not being harsh. He's being incredibly tender. And what Jesus is doing is he's going to the control center of her life, because all of her life she's been drawing from the well of relationships thinking that if I draw and drink from the well of relationship then I'll, satisfy, I'll be satisfied. So men after men, she's been falling into the arms of the love of different men and just quite didn't do it. She kept on moving on, on and on. She's been drinking and drinking and drinking and she's always been thirsty. And the reality is for us too, many of us in this room, in all of our campuses, We've been drinking from the well of relationships, thinking that that's gonna satisfy. Drinking the well of pleasure. All the vacation we want, maybe that will satisfy. Um, drinking from the well of fame and power or whatever it is. And the idea here is that only the gospel is the message that will ultimately satisfy. If you're not drinking from the well of the gospel, you will thirst again. You will thirst again. And that's exactly what God is saying here in the book of Isaiah. Unless you feast on me, you're going to starve. I am the only bread that will satisfy. I have to be the living reality in the center of your heart. And when that happens, you know that you're truly converted for the first time. And when you've tasted such water and bread, you'll realize all the other water and bread that you've been eating and feasting on just grows dim in light of his grace, in light of the fullness. Money, power, and sex, they've all been lesser bread and water for us. It's not meant to fill us. Biblical conversion always starts and ends being converted in what your heart seeks, not just what you say and do. That's the reality of true conversion. Then only one question still remains. And the question is this, then what will convert my heart? The question is, how could I get my heart to want the true everlasting water? How could I long for the gospel? And he gives us the solution. In point three, God sends you out, not just with splendor, not with a message that satisfies alone, but he sends you out with a message of power. Power. Three specifically, the power to change your heart, the power to not offend others as you share, and the power to give you the courage to share. Let's go address each one. First, the power to change your heart. Verse 3, it says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you, listen, an everlasting covenant. Now the key here is to look at everlasting covenant. A covenant is a binding relationship with the God of the universe. Throughout the Bible, God makes covenants with Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, the Israelites. So it makes it seem when we read these things that a covenantal relationship with God is possible. Yet, the word everlasting here creates a real tension. Here's what I mean. If you really, really, really read your Bible well, if you study it, and I've been studying it seriously for now about 25 years, you see one of the biggest questions that comes up is whether his covenants are really eternal. The question is, are his covenants really unconditional or rather conditional? Because let me make this case. When we read the scripture, sometimes we see God saying, I will never leave you, forsake you, right? How comforting. What a covenant. What a promise. That's unconditional, right? But you turn the page, and all of a sudden it says, I will never leave you, forsake you, and yet you do this to me, do this, do this, you worship this, and you're out. Like, wait a minute. Is God's covenant now back to conditional? What's going on? Now, as you read throughout the Bible, like, this is a huge question. In fact, there's some places that seem like God saying, man, my covenant is solid gold. I'm never gonna change my mind, and yet, if you do this and that and this, then you're out, all in the same chapter sometimes. Now, over the years, the reality is, whether you know it or not, most of us have resolved this tension. Uh, most of us either fall into one of two camps, the moral religious camp, or the secular relativistic camp. And let me just describe these camps. The moral religious camp says basically, you know what? When it comes down to it, yeah, God is loving, God is accepting, but at the end of the day, God's commands trump his covenants. Meaning, yeah, God promises a lot. He says he'll never leave us, but unless we do what he commands, he's going to drop you. That is his prerogative. So basically, when it comes right down to it, if you want a relationship with God, you better live up. This is how they resolve the tension. A lot of times I see this mentality of morality in the South. But where I come from, the Western side, the liberal side, the secular relativists hang out there, and there's this camp. They will look at an everlasting covenant and say, well, you know what? Listen, of course God wants you to be holy. He wants you to honor his commandments, and it's all good. But at the end of the day, covenants trump the commands. They would say, well, you know what? Though God tells us to follow those rules, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you follow them or not because he's just going to save you anyway. It doesn't matter what you do, how you live. He's just going to save you anyway. It's going to be awesome regardless of how you live. Here's the question again. Are his covenants conditional or unconditional? And what you find is that if you resolve that tension through the lens of these two camps, you are not being converted you're not. It does not have the power to convert your heart. It does not have the power to grip your emotion. It does not have the power to give you the joy and life and honor and beauty. It does not have the power to do that. Your heart, the control center of your life is not being moved. So the question still remains, what will change my heart? See, when you read the Old Testament, it deliberately, deliberately does not resolve the tension. In fact, it maintains that tension only to propel us to a greater meta-narrative of Scripture. Do you see the suspense? Do you feel the tension? When you're reading the Bible, it keeps coming up. Is God finally going to give up on His people? What well, if He does? What about His love? Or is God finally going to give in to His people, let them live as They want to live and still love them. Well, then, what about his laws and his commandments and his holiness? Is God gonna give up or is he going to simply give in? What will he do? And the reality is the Old Testament never resolves it. Then, where is the tension resolved? Only one place and one place alone. It's on the cross. It's on the cross. Listen, the last thing that Buddha ever said before he died was, strive without ceasing. He said, work, 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 labor, labor, labor. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, the last words that came out of his mouth was, it is finished. Tetelestai, which means I have accomplished it. Meaning, on that day on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived every sin through every person who would ever believe. God treated Jesus as if he had committed every single sin by every single person who would ever believe even though he didn't commit a single sin. Why? So that God could treat you as if you had lived now his life. See how profound that is, that God would treat Jesus as if he had lived your life? so that he could treat you now as if you had lived his. And if that doesn't strike you, let me peel back another layer. Ever wonder why Jesus lived 33 years? You ever wonder that? I mean, think about it. If you and I were kind of designing a plan of salvation, this is what I would do. The father would talk to his son and say, you know what, you must go and make a people for yourself. Like, okay, daddy, I'm gonna pack light Because it only requires three days. I'm going to go down on a Friday, die on the cross, come back by Sunday, and we'll call it good, right? In fact, there's no other component in the gospel that saves but those three days, correct? Then the question is, why the 33 years? Especially the... Early years where the Bible doesn't give much commentary. Why why would he live those early years? I mean, could you imagine Jesus as a little child? Could you imagine him? Did he know calculus? Did he know that? Could you imagine how annoying it would be to be a sibling of a perfect child? How annoying it is. You can imagine James is busting the dishes and drops one, cracks all over the ground. Mother Mary turns to him and says, James... What would Jesus do? <laughs> right? No wonder James didn't believe. Right? Annoying, right? How about the last three years of his life with all the persecution and suffering and spitting and marring? Why did he go through that? Why? Why the 33 years? Why? Let me tell you why. When Jesus came into his public ministry, he went first to go find John to be baptized. When he sees John, John says... Jesus, you're the Messiah, you need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, John, you need to baptize me. And the next few words will revolutionize the world because he said, you need to baptize me because I must fulfill all righteousness. And what this means is he lived the 33 years because the way he lived It would be credited unto our account, and our sinful lives would be credited unto his. And Jesus lived the full righteousness. Listen, Jesus fulfilled all the conditions so that now God could look at us unconditionally. So here's the real question. Is your relationship with God conditional or unconditional? And the answer is both. It's both. Because I want you to look at verse 1 again. It says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Do you see the beautiful paradox that is maintained in this imagery here? He says, come, buy without cost. You're like, well, that is paradoxical. How could you buy something when everything is free? Everything is free, right? That means you have no price that you have to pay. No, the gospel is not free. It was just free to you. It was not free to God. He paid a great price, and the price was his only begotten son. And we often think, you know, oh, you know, we have these little sins. How dare we even think that we have little sins when every single sin in our lives costs our daddy, his son. All the conditions of our life went to Jesus so that all the unconditions that was released from his perfect life now comes to us. The water and the bread wasn't free. It was just free to us. It wasn't free to God. He lost his son. So when we see him on the cross saying, it is finished, He's saying, I have traversed every inch of that infinite distance between you and God, and there's nothing left for you to do except repent and believe. So come. What an invitation. Buy. I have no money, but you can still eat. (laughs) How glorious is our God. How generous and precious is the gospel. And knowing that it was so costly and yet free to us knowing that it was conditional and yet now unconditional to me through that. Though I know I'm radically sinful and yet I'm loved to the heights, it is that utter reality, when we reflect on it, that has the power to change our hearts. And when we are converted, yes, when we are converted in our hearts, that's when it's catalyzed into the world. That's what mission is about. That's what mission is about. You are a witness, you have absolutely experienced the splendor of the gospel. See how fulfilling it is. What power? But here's the second power. God sends you out with the power to not offend. How does this work? Well, as you share, do you realize that the gospel makes it absolutely impossible, impossible for us absolutely to feel superior over any of those that we are talking to? Well listen, the reality of the gospel is this. It tells you how dare you feel superior over them. The gospel is not in you because you lived a better life. The gospel is not in you because you have better doctrine. The gospel is not in you because you're just a better person. In fact, in my neighborhood, most most of my neighbors are all Muslims. And in fact, these people, A lot of them, if not most of them, if not all of them, are better people than I am. You know, they're more moral, they're more kind, they're more generous. They probably scream at their kids way less than I do. They're way better people than me, and yet here I am with the gospel, and here they are without. It's not on the account because I was smarter. It's not even my faith. Listen, you think the faith is you cried out. Dead people can't cry out. You were not sick in your transgression. You were dead in your transgressions. God didn't find you in the hospital. God found you in the morgue. More people cannot cry out. And if God's going to save you, he's going to reach to the utter depths of deadness and bring you back to life in resurrection. Yes, it's true. So we see in Ephesians 2, for by grace we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of our works, meaning both grace and faith has been given to us as a gift we can't have faith unless god gives it to us you see we can't even take credit for even our faith god gives it to you how dare we then feel superior over anybody else we share with you see the gospel strips you of the superiority and it utterly humbles us and when we approach the gospel and others with that attitude and that heart with that doctrine they'll receive it it does not offend but here's the third thing the gospel empowers us to do It gives us the courage to actually share with others. And what I mean by this is that if I were to be so honest, the number one reason for not sharing the gospel is that we have not been enamored by the splendor of His glory. That's the reality. But the second close reason why we don't share the gospel is because we are actually scared. That we're fearful. We're fearful that this might change our relationship, we're fearful of rejection. We're fearful that somebody be angry at us. But how do we gain this courage from the gospel? One way and one way alone. It comes from being so affirmed by God that it starts meaning less of whatever person is rejecting you or whatever opinion that others have of you. You care less of what people think because you're so affirmed by God. I'll give you an example of this. My son, when he was 10 years old, I saw him sitting by a curb when all the other kids were playing on the jumpy houses and the obstacle courses that we set out on a great party that we're throwing at church. We're having really a good time, and here's my son on the curb grinding on a hot dog. Now listen, us Kwans, we're known to grind on hot dogs. That's that's what we do. And yet my son, he was just alone, so of course as a tender dad, I, I knelt by his side and I said, son... Um, what's going on? It seems like you're thinking about something. He goes, Dad, could I ask you a question? I'm like, sure. What will you ask me? He says, Dad, what is the greatest temptation of man? (laughs) Let me give you a pro tip here. When you are asked a question that you do not know the answer to, just flip it around and just ask the same question. What do you think is the greatest (laughs) temptation of man? And he's like, well, I think it's money, power, and fame, Dad. Oh, that's good. Taking a little note there. He's like, but, Dad, I'm not tempted because I realize I'm the richest kid in the world. You know why? Because I have the gospel, and because of the gospel, God says that I'm an heir to his kingdom. I'm like, come on. He goes, but, Dad, you know? I'm also like really powerful because the world wants this power that I have that they don't. That is the power to live forever. I'm like, preach, boy. He goes, dad, and you know when it comes to popularity and fame, LeBron James' son is really popular on the account of his dad. But you know what? I'm the son of the king of all kings. I'm like, preach, boy, preach. I'm like, boy, when did I ever teach you this? He's like, you didn't like my Sunday school teacher did. (laughs) My son now, he's 13 years old. And just last week, he got rejected by his first love, a 13-year-old bratty girl. (laughs) And as a tender father, of course, I knelt down as if he was grinding on a hot dog. (laughs) Son, are you okay? And he's like, Dad, She's just a girl. She's not my God. And she's like, I'm already fully affirmed in Jesus Christ. I know who I am. I'm like, dang, boy. Yeah, I'm like, oh, my gosh. And my emotions and my identity is so fragile. When you don't laugh at my jokes, I'm hurt. Right? And here is a 13-year-old boy so grounded in the reality of a simple faith of the gospel. He knows he's so affirmed that all the other opinions in this life matter less. Listen, let me ask you a question. What is the greatest compliment you have ever received? What is the greatest compliment? Somebody's saying, wow, it looks like you lost some weight. Maybe 20 pounds, oh, that's offensive, 10 pounds. You look like, wow, oh, you look great. You're like, thank you. Man, your face is radiant, your skin is really glowing, you look great. Man, I love your haircut, man, where'd you get it? That's awesome. You realize every compliment that we receive on this side of Earth is temporary? and it's eroding, don't you know that all the weight that you just lost is ferociously fighting its way back home? (laughs) Do you know that? You know that, right? You know, like no matter what kind of treatment that you have on your face, all the cucumber and all the broccoli and all the vegetable, it could be a garden salad on your face, okay? It doesn't matter, eventually you'll get wrinkles so you'll lead to nipping and tucking and eventually your eyes will be so stretched out that your eyes will be on the side of your face. (laughs) You realize that, right? You realize that no matter what you do to your hair, how much you color, eventually it all grays out, it all falls out. Now listen, this is the commendation that you will receive from God, and you have because of the gospel. Compare all that you have ever received, all the compliments to this, and God says to us, because of the work on the cross, Because the work is finished. Because of tetelestai, I have accomplished it. Now, in your life, I view you as if you have the greatest beauty, the most righteous life, as if you've lived the most courageous life, most humble life, most generous life, most sacrificial life. You are sacrificial, noble, holy, and courageous, and humble. This is how God views us today. And you're like, that's scandalous. Man, I didn't live that life. But when Jesus went on the cross, on that day, God treated Jesus as if he had lived your life. So that he could treat you as if, now as if, you had lived his perfect life. That is the great extreme. That's the substitutionary atonement, which means now we get to hear the everlasting affection from this everlasting King of everything that Jesus has ever accomplished now is credited to us. So now God looks upon us and says, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Doesn't matter what you've done this week, doesn't matter what you've been running away from, with all your secret sins that nobody knows, you know, the last 10% of your life that nobody else knows, it doesn't matter. God looks upon you on the account of Jesus' life, says, You're my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with you. You're my beloved daughter, I'm well pleased with you. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant and the gospel will allow us to hear that voice more profoundly than all the voices in the world that crowds us if that is the affirmation that you hear I mean listen who cares what the commoners say who cares what the serfs say if we have the everlasting affection and affirmation of an everlasting King who cares who cares And that's on you, that's on me because of what Christ has done on the cross. And this will forge us to become courageous people. This will give us the satisfaction and the fulfillment in our hearts. This has the power to change our lives. So come. Buy, eat, now go. And we pray, all campuses bowing your heads together. Father, what affirmation we receive through the gospel, what identity it frees us from fearing all criticism, no matter what our parents think of us, no matter what our coworkers say, Father, I pray that all of the voices that we hear, including our own, the voice that tells us, oh, you suck and you failed those voices that come in in the middle of the night, I pray, Father, that those will be drowned out on the account of the voice that you give, the affirmation you give towards us, Jesus. The affirmation that we hear to say that we are your beloved son, we are your beloved daughter, and it is true on the account what Jesus did, what affirmation, what power. So, will you send us out with that power, with that courage, with that identity, so that you would use us to change the world? And we thank you for it. And all God's people said and across all the campuses, all God's people said, Amen. Amen.